Thank you guys for leading worship this morning. I'm thankful some of y'all do understand. A lot of you don't understand how difficult it is this time, this day and age, to fill up our teams, Uh, the the teams that we have doing so many different things here at Union Hill, uh, trying to uh, fill those teams up and continue to do ministry sometimes gets very difficult. Uh, a lot of the teams that we have, security team, uh, who, who some of those guys serve on a weekly basis where before COVID they served uh, once a month or twice a month, and now they serve weekly. And our uh, greeter teams is another one. Um, guys in the back, uh, some of you guys pull uh, duty so many times a month, and we're so thankful for you guys powers finding people to help lead worship help play instruments and sing uh, can be difficult on a lot of weeks and so um, I'm thankful for the people that serve at Union Hill I really appreciate y'all I'm coming back from vacation right now Uh, if I were to tell you that I'm so glad to be here today that I was ready to leave Orange Beach Perdido Key uh, I would be lying and I would have to confess that before I preached and uh, we had a wonderful time. I appreciate you guys letting my family and me go on vacation and, and, uh, and letting us uh, chill and not be involved in all the things that we're normally involved in. And you just kind of leave us alone. And I'm thankful for that. Uh, for the family that was down there with us that loved on us, I just want to say a special thank you to them and uh, how much they mean to us and to take care of our family. We're so thankful for them. And, uh, and it's just, it really is good to be back. We're getting ready to start school. Can I get an amen? Hey, if you're a school teacher, if you're a school teacher, would you please stand in the house of God today? If you're a school teacher, would you please stand? Or you serve, uh, serve in the office or serve in the lunchroom or serve anywhere. But just stand. Don't sit down. Just stay standing. I know this makes you feel weird. Just stay standing. All right, all right. I see a coach back here in the back. He's not standing and he's shaking his head. No. Yes, sir. You got to stand up, coach. All right. All right. Here we go. Here we go. Let's pray over our teachers. Let's pray over our teachers. Father God, anoint these men and women for the ministry that they have at hand. God, they can't do it on their own. They need you. Give them wisdom to know what to do, to know what to say, to know when to say it, to know when not to say it. God, I pray for their kids. I pray, God, for respect in those children. I pray, God, for good decisions this year. Father, we pray around our schools right now, Father. We ask for protection on our schools. God, I pray for those SRO officers, Father. I pray, God, that you would give them wisdom. Father, I pray that you would surround those schools with your protection, with your hand, with your angels, Father. You would sit down on our school systems. Father, whatever the churches can do for our teachers and whatever the churches can do for our schools, Father, I pray that you would allow the churches to be in the public school system. I pray, God, for these believing teachers. God, I pray that they would not back down from their faith. God, when you give them an opportunity to share the gospel, God, I pray that they would stand in boldness and proclaim the goodness and grace of Jesus Christ. We give you this school year. It is yours. These are your servants. Empower them for the ministry. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. Thank you so much. You may be seated. Hey, Luke chapter number 18 is where we're going to go. Luke chapter number 18. We need to fly today. Can we fly today? 
uh, Luke chapter number 18. We've been in a series, Justin continued our series with Conversations with Jesus, where we're looking in the Gospels at conversations that Jesus had with different individuals, okay? Uh, I think he took a break from it last week. He talked about us being uh, jars of clay, vessels filled with the glory of Christ. Two weeks ago, he preached a wonderful sermon on, um, on uh, ripping the roof off. Y'all remember that story. Uh, this week, uh, we're going back to the book of Luke. I have kind of centered into the book of Luke talking about who Jesus is and who the, the fact that he represents God in the flesh and who he came for that Jesus came for the poor of spirit, that he came for those who are held captive, he came for those who are oppressed, he came for those who are blind. Jesus came for those individuals, and if you read the book of Luke, it's there in chapter 4 where he gives that mission statement. If you read the book of Luke, you will then begin to see how that plays out, how Jesus spent his time reaching the unreachable, the unlovable. We've worked through that and we've looked at all kind, of, all kind of individuals who represent those people and Luke lays that out. But there is a group of people in the gospel of Luke and Luke is very strategic when he writes this to include them in that Jesus butts heads with. He butts heads with a religious crowd that, that really is against him. And it's not so much that he's against these people individually, but he's against what these people represent. One of the most important questions that we get from people seeking God in their life is what's the, what's the most thing that God wants for me? Or what's the greatest thing that God wants for me? If you are, are you know, in a business and you run numbers or, or you're running a, a program and you run numbers, you're running the numbers of everything, uh, the, the, the question often is, is what is the bottom line? We do that in our, in our house on our budget sometimes. We do that. When we don't do that quite often, we find ourselves paying off debt, just to be honest with you. Uh, and, uh, but, but what's the bottom line here? If you were to have a conversation with Jesus and you asked him what the bottom line is, if we could cut through all of the, the man-made Christian, because some of it is man-made, some of the man-made religion, if you could cut through all of the fluff, what's the bottom line? R.C. Sproul says that the chief goal of the Christian life is righteousness. It's a wonderful word there. Powers is what he was talking about on the, the, the backside or the end of his prayer is the, the conundrum. What a good word that is, by the way. I had to look it up uh, before I came up here. I'm kidding, I didn't. The, the problem that we're in with God is that he's holy and we're not. And how does he allow us into heaven? That's really what righteousness is all about. You hear people talk about, hey, I want to be humble. I want to have more of the Holy Spirit. I, I want to serve God more. But rarely do you hear people say, hey, I'd like to be more righteous. You don't hear it a lot. But if Jesus walked in here today and you asked him, what is the bottom line for the church? What is the bottom line for me as a believer? I think that Jesus would answer it with Matthew 6, verse 33. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all of these things shall be added unto you. That's what I think. 
And I think that we don't often like this word or use this word because the definition means to be morally true and we know that we're not. And so we avoid that word. In fact, we avoid the word righteousness so much that when we know somebody's wrong, we, we sometimes choose not to say anything or have an opinion about that because we know that they may be wrong, but we're wrong too. And if I call them out or if I was to say something about that being wrong in society or that being wrong in culture, then, then, then what if somebody said something about my life and the things that I'm wrong in too? So, so let's just do this. And this is very, very, uh, in a lot of ways, this is where the church sits in our country, by the way. Let's just do this. Let's just all agree that we're all wrong and be happy about it. And I really think that the Scripture is calling God's people to a righteousness that can only be attained in Him. can only be found in Him. Righteousness is the idea. Let's put this on the screen, please. Righteousness is the idea of being right in the eyes of God. Right in the eyes of God in our character, in our conscience, in our conduct, and in His commands. You think about that. Let the weight of that sit on you for a second. That we are right in the eyes of God in our character, in our conscience, in our conduct, and in His commands. Think about that. I've blown every single one of those. My character has been terrible at times. In fact, you could take a snapshot of Mike Stevens' life in moments of my life, and I have been terrible in my character, my thoughts, my attitudes, what I do, and his commands all at one time. And you could take that snapshot and look at me and go, there's no way that he's saved. And so I look at that and I feel the weight of that this morning and and all I can do is say, I need God because I can get none of this done on my own. I need God. Uh, There's a group in the New Testament known as the scribes and the Pharisees. And in Luke chapter 18, verse 9, it gives a description of these individuals. Let's talk about them for a minute. Let's look at verse 9. Luke 18, starting in verse 9. We'll have that on the screen for you, but you can turn there. Luke 18, starting in verse 9. Once again, we're in the book of Luke. And listen to what, how Luke describes the Pharisees and the scribes. Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. They trusted in their own righteousness. They were self-righteous. And, and not only on top of that, Because they were self-righteous, they treated others with contempt. Jesus tells this parable. He says, two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other was a tax collector. These are total opposite ends of the spectrum, by the way. You hated tax collectors because they were Jewish and they robbed you of your money to give to the Romans. And if the Romans said, hey, I want you to collect $100 from everybody, the tax collector would show up who was Jewish and he would say, hey, Rome wants 200 and so the tax collector would take the 200 from you, turn around and keep 100 and give 100 to Rome. That's how it worked. Tax collectors were hated because they were liars and they were thieves. Do you see that? 
We have a Pharisee who is proud of his righteousness and a tax collector who's a lying thief. How many of y'all hate lying thieves? Would you raise your hand? You ever had something stolen from you? It'll burn you up, won't it? They hated tax collectors. And both of them decided to go to church this day. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus. See out loud in front of everybody, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, tax collectors. Unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector, I fast two times a week and I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector stood far off. He would not even lift up his head to heaven, but beat his breast, his chest. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you that this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. It's a wonderful text. It's one of many texts in the book of Luke that talk about the Pharisees. There's this group. They are a Jewish party that rose up, a religious party, but also a, a, a political party. Whenever we think of these guys, we normally think that they are the most vile, evil people. But if you lived during this day, you didn't think that. You thought that if you looked at a Pharisee, you thought if anybody was going to make it to heaven, it would be this guy. Because he looks right. He looks righteous. He looks, his deeds look good on the outside. You don't see these people in the Old Testament because they're not there. Pharisees become, begin to, on the scene during the time between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And we catch them in the New Testament in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They are a religious group, a political group that rises out of a Jewish system that is filled with pagan deity and false idol worship. And so what began to take place is that in the Old Testament, the Jewish religion was being mixed with false idol worship, and there rose a group out who wanted to go back to godliness and the traditions of the religion to bring the nation into godliness. Once again, R.C. Sproul, who I'm leaning on heavily this morning, says that this group was the ancient counterpart to the Puritan movement who started this country. The Pharisees got their start with the sole goal of righteousness in the nation, to see righteousness thrive in the nation, to get back to the roots of Judaism, to exalt God. But by the time Jesus came along, this religious political party had become full of hypocrisy. They had started with good motives, but had achieved any or hadn't achieved any righteousness at all. In fact, what they had done is they created a burdensome religion on people and prided themselves on trying to keep the law for the purpose to be seen by others, according to Matthew 23. The Pharisees would have loved Facebook because they could have posted up all of their religious actions for the world to see. And you would have known this guy really loves God. Look at what he does. The word used for them by Jesus multiple occasions is the word hypocrite. Hypocrite literally means actor. It's the reason why a lot of people won't step foot into the house of God. Though I think if you were to get down to it, they're as much of a hypocrite as anybody in here as well. But we'll use that excuse to not come to the house of God. However, 
let's be honest. The church is filled with actors. The pulpits in our country are filled with actors. And I can just tell you this. If I take my eyes off of Christ and stand up here and proclaim God's word and have a good preaching voice and go into all the thoughts of the, what the Bible says and I begin to roll out in an actor voice, Mike Stevens can be as much of a hypocrite as anybody in this place. They wore a mask. This is what Jesus is getting at when he uses the word hypocrite. An actor on a stage, someone playing the part, And in Luke 18, the word describes these people not as righteous, but as self-righteous. Go back to verse 9 for me, please, John. Listen to this. Verse 9. Look at what the text says. Luke 18, verse 9. He also told this parable to some who were standing around him. They trusted in themselves that they were righteous. They trusted in their own righteousness. There it is. It's the confidence in their own standing before God, not for what he's done on their behalf, but but because of their own outward works. Let's talk about a few of them and we'll be done today. There are conversations that appear everywhere in the text. We could flip there a lot. If you want to, we can. Let's notice this first thought process about the Pharisees in the conversations that Jesus has with the Pharisees, with the scribes, with the religious crowd who who viewed themselves as self-righteous, as right in the eyes of God because of what I've done. The Pharisees were very concerned with Sabbath keeping. Sabbath keeping. They went to church and they were good and religious at faithful at attending church. They kept the Sabbath on Saturday. That's the Sabbath. Sabbath is Saturday. They kept it. One of the reasons they kept it is because the Ten Commandments say keep the Sabbath day holy. And boy, they kept it. They kept it holy to honor the fourth command. Remember, God created everything in six days. He rested on the seventh. This is why the commandment is in there. Hey, listen to me. Everybody look at me. Particularly those that love their job and love to work. Y'all listen to me. Don't, 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 don't lose this. If you love your job and love to work, don't miss the fourth commandment that God wants you to worship and rest on one particular day. I think the commands are good. Hmm, Figured I'd get an amen in a Baptist church. Rest and worship. That's what the Sabbath day is. It's okay to take a break. In a seven-day work week, take a break. Be with your family. Eat dinner around the table. Laugh and cut up. Go outside. Go to the river. Go on vacation. Play with your kids. Go on a date with your wife. Some of you love your job so much that you're missing the fourth commandment. Slow down. When you're on your deathbed, nobody cares how you performed in your job. When you're in your deathbed, you want your family around you. And if you live for your job to the point that you will have no family, I promise you, you'll regret it. Keep the fourth commandment. 
The Pharisees kept the fourth commandment. They kept it so much that they created a system of laws that defined what work was. And they wouldn't even break those laws because of work. They had burdened the people so much. It's still a burden today. You can go to Israel. I've told this story on multiple occasions, particularly on Wednesday nights. You can go to Israel right now. If you visit Israel and tour the Holy Land, you can walk through the city, do all the stuff. If you get to Saturday, the Sabbath. Now, I, if you get to Saturday, the Sabbath, in Israel, you walk through, you go into your hotel. If you're visiting there, you're not Jewish, you go into your hotel. They consider touching a button as work. So you walk into your hotel, there's a line of people, Jewish people, at one particular elevator that will visit floor to floor to floor to floor so you do not have to touch buttons and break the law of keeping the Sabbath. And so when you show up to your hotel on the Sabbath and walk past this long line of people, they then file in behind you. They let you touch the button to go up the elevator. Why would they do that? Because religion says I have to do this and this and this and this and this and this to be right with God. That, that's how they keep it even to this day. Jesus comes into the system. Uh, we could walk through this if you wanted to, but Luke 13, Luke 14, Luke chapter 6, Luke chapter 7, all deals with the Sabbath. He picked on the Sabbath on purpose, I think, just to frustrate the Pharisees. He loved it. He enjoyed it. He frustrated them on their man-made religion that they had taken the fourth command and turned it into a burdensome command that was meant to be freeing for the people of God. And they turned it into a burden. And then Jesus says there in the text in Luke chapter 6, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. You don't tell me what to do on Saturday. I own the Sabbath. I own the Sabbath. I think it's wonderful. Jesus picked on that. These Pharisees, these scribes, they kept the Sabbath. Let's go quickly. They desired spiritual status. They desired spiritual status. Luke 14 verses 8 through 11 is a shocking illustration about how they desired spiritual status. When the, the, the illustration is this, you walk into a wedding feast. Brandon and Tiffany just got married and... and um, it would be like going to Brennan and Tiffany's wedding and then the reception time came and y'all, did y'all have, I wasn't able to come, but did y'all have a table there for you, just you guys to sit and eat? Y'all didn't have that? Okay. How many of y'all had a table? Y'all just ruined the illustration. Appreciate that. Uh, <laughs> how many of y'all had a table set up there at the reception just for, uh, Mason, you, you guys did, uh, just for bride and groom there to be together. People come by, visit, y'all eat, y'all hang out. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Uh, Luke 14, verse 8, Jesus gives an illustration of like, you went to that wedding and you sat at that table. Because that's how highly you thought of yourself. Jesus is saying the Pharisees thought like that. They desired they desired spiritual status. They not only wanted people to see them, they wanted people to admire them, to be honored by them. This is what Jesus says the Pharisees are. The Pharisees were also evangelistic. Matthew 23, verse 15, nothing wrong with this word, by the way, that they were evangelistic. There's nothing wrong with this word. They just didn't evangelize the gospel. They evangelized with a false gospel, a false religion. But in Matthew 23, verse 15, Jesus says these people would travel by land or sea for one convert. They'd go anywhere. 
just to make one convert. They were extremely evangelistic. As I roll through these, listen to the groups that I am describing in America today. Listen to these folks. They're Sabbath keepers. They want to be spiritual. They evangelize and they're good at it. They love the Scripture. In fact, in order to be a Pharisee, you had to memorize the first five books of the Bible. They memorized the Bible. The problem is the Bible just didn't get inside of them. It didn't get into their DNA, into their bloodstream. But they knew it. They knew it here. They just didn't know it here. They kept the Sabbath. They, were, they desired spiritual status. They evangelized. They loved the Bible. They loved prayer. They loved it so much they prayed these long, extravagant prayers. Matthew 6 goes all the way. Jesus says in that particular text, Hey, you think you're going to be heard by how many words you say? Give me a break. They love to pray these long, extravagant prayers. We just heard a prayer in Luke 18, the self-righteous tone. God, I thank you that I'm not like this tax collector over here. This thing could go on and on and on about the description of these individuals. I want you all to know something, folks. What I'm describing is religion in the South. People who go to church who desire spiritual status, who talk about evangelism, who memorize the Bible and know the Bible and read the Bible, who pray long prayers, and at the end of the day, they put all of their stock in being right with God on the checklist, and none of that checklist got inside of them. They're Southern Baptists. They're Methodists. They're Assembly of God. They're Catholics, they're, they're uh, Church of God, they're um, uh, Episcopalians, they're uh, Presbyterians. They are people who go to church, who desire to be spiritual on the outside, who desire to, to bring people into the church, to evangelize. They love the Bible, to know the Bible they love to pray long prayers to be seen by people. And at the end of the day, none of that changed their heart. I'm here to tell you today that you can be religious as all get out. But if Jesus Christ has not changed your heart, none of those things matter. None of them. None of them. None of them. None of them. They do matter. All of those are wonderful things. Don't leave out of here today and say, praise God. Mike says, I ain't got to do nothing. <laughs> no, the Bible, the Bible breaks all those things down. We didn't throw this up here. They were, they were tithers. They were so meticulous in their tithing. You know what they would do? They had herb gardens, not herb gardens, herb gardens. And if they had 10 plants of mint that grew in the herb garden, according to Matthew chapter 23, you know what they did? They picked one of those and carried it to the temple for their tithe. That's how meticulous they were with tithing. And Jesus says, hey, you're great tithers. And that's wonderful. In fact, he commends them in Matthew 23 on their tithing. He said, but there's a greater thing in the law that you avoid. It's justice and mercy and faithfulness. 
hey, you're great at tithing, but you don't even treat your neighbor right. That's what Jesus is saying. And by the way, he says that treating your neighbor right is above in the law than tithing. Y'all better listen to me. These people vote conservative. These people vote Democrat. These people, watch this, self-righteousness can flip to the other side. There's a group of people in our country that do not keep the Sabbath ever, that, that, that desire nothing spiritual, that desire, do not desire evangelism. They don't care about tithing. They don't care about the word. They don't care about prayer at all. And they would tell you they're right with God in God's eyes. They would tell you they're going to heaven in God's eyes. And there is nothing righteous about their life at all. They care nothing about living for God. And would tell you that they're right with God too. That's self-righteousness as well. I don't, I don't need all that stuff. I'll be right with God. I'll stand before him one day and everything will be okay. How could it be okay? Watch this. You better listen. Because I'm a good person. Compared to who? Well, I'm not Adolf Hitler. You may not be Adolf Hitler, but you are a liar. And you are a murderer. And you are an adulterer. Just like me. I've broken all the commands too. There it is, powers. The conundrum. It's a good word. There it is. How does a holy God let a lying, adultering, thieving, greedy, unholy Mike Stevens enter into heaven? How does he do that? Very quickly, he does it because there's a righteousness outside of ourself. Matthew 5, 20. Let's, let's turn there. I don't know if we have that in the back. I don't think I asked you to get that in the back. Turn, turn to Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. I, I want you to see this in the text. And before we hit this, listen to me really quick, really quick, before we hit this. The religious people who don't care about church at all and do not come through the doors, but they grew up and they do not care about anything that uh, uh, concerns the house of God. They do not care anything about, about walking with God. That crowd who would tell you that they're okay with God, they are just as self-righteous as the crowd in the church who does everything but has not been changed by the Holy Spirit. It's a, different, it's a different side of the self-righteous coin. It's a different side. Well, look at what Jesus says in Matthew 5, 20. For I tell you that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter into the kingdom of heaven. The righteousness of Jesus that he offers allows us to exceed what these Pharisees look like. They looked good on the outside. They were so far from God on the inside. This is how it works. Um, my kids are in here, and uh, this is going to be fantastic um, because one of them is about to be embarrassed. I hope not. Sam, would you come stand with me? Nope. <laughs> Sawyer, will you come stand with me? I, I promise I'm not going to do anything to embarrass you. I promise you just got to stand in front of people. 
Did you just walk up here barefooted? Uh, there we go. Okay. Check this out. We went school clothes shopping yesterday, and um, this illustration really could have been done with Sam's shoes because they were a little bit big when we bought Sam's shoes. Want to know why we bought a size that's a little bit big? Because he's growing, right? He's growing. Found out that uh, he said, Dad, my, my baseball cleats are rubbing blisters on my feet. And I'm like, dude, we just bought these like two months ago. They were already two sizes too small when we bought him new baseball cleats. That's how fast his foot was growing. Um, this is how the righteousness of God works, okay? So, so the righteousness of Christ comes on top of us and sits on us. This is the answer to the question, how does an unholy Mike Stevens, who's broken everything in the book, how does he get into heaven? Because God is holy. So what, what does God do? Well, he gives Mike Stephen righteousness. All the things that Jesus did which are good, everything which is perfect. And here's the word, KJV word, you ready? Have been imputed to my account, spiritually speaking. It's a bank term for you bankers in here. He, I fasted before and I've broken the fast by accident. Shh, don't tell fast that I was fasting and in the middle of it I forgot and I was at Uncle Sam's and I ordered sweet tea and I drank it all and I broke the fast and oh my goodness now God hates me well no I did sin that is sin I did sin but watch this the righteousness of Christ has been imputed onto me Jesus was perfect in his fast and I get credit for that does that make any sense? It's hard. It, it, it kind of works like this. Sawyer, you get to wear daddy's jacket. So your size small, put your arms in there. Your size small gets to wear a 52 regular jacket. Okay? Watch this. This is how it works. Stand up here. We got to get this side over here to, to see you. Right there on the edge and don't fall off. There we go. Don't fall off now. This is how it works. God takes the righteousness of Christ and puts it on us. All of the goodness of Jesus gets on us. It's on us. From a heavenly perspective, it's on us. Now, here's the problem. I don't feel like it is. In fact, in fact, I live sometimes like it's not. I sin and I mess up and my thoughts are bad sometimes and I make terrible decisions sometimes. But guess what? It does not change that I am found in Christ. Want to know how to defeat a self-centered, a self-righteous thought process? Find your identity in Jesus, okay? And so here's Jesus. He gives me the righteousness that he has and he cloaks me in it. And listen to me, it doesn't fit. It's too big. I don't fit in the righteousness robe right yet. It's about a 10X. And I wear a 3X. Stretched out to a 4X. It's too big for me, but just like Sam's shoes, I'm going to grow into it, and one day I'm going to stand before him cloaked in the righteousness of Christ. And guess what? It's going to fit. It's going to fit. 
See, the person who's self-righteous has not been cloaked in the righteousness of Christ. You know what they're cloaked in, don't you? Their, their beautiful black dress and their Sunday best. And it looks great. It looks wonderful. In fact, it looks churchy. But none of it's good enough. We have to be cloaked into something. That's too big for us right now. Oh, but by the grace of God, I'm going to grow into it. I'm growing into it. I am growing into it. The scripture tells me I'm growing into it. Jesus is forming me into it. If you are a believer in the house of God, I'm describing you right now, but please hear me. If you're here today and you put stock in the fact that I did this, 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 and one day when I stand before God, I'm going to be right with him. I'm right with him now because look at all the stuff that I'm doing. You have missed it. You missed it. You've missed it. Has your heart been changed by what Jesus has done? And if it hadn't, you're lost. You see, he died on the cross for you. This is where the righteousness comes from. He died for you and he rose from the grave for you. And he did all of that because he loves you so much. He wants to change your life. And if you're here today and you've never been changed by the, by the love of Jesus Christ, he wants to do that this morning. What do I got to do? Pray, ask, receive, believe. That's it. Believe on Jesus. Look to him. And he will save you today. Father God, we want to say thank you for the righteousness that you provide in Jesus. We want to say thank you for what you've done on our behalf, God. And God, it's not that any of this, these check marks, it's not that any of them aren't important, God. I think going to church is important, and I think being generous is important, Father. And, and God, your word tells us that prayer is important. Father, in fact, your word tells us not, not only a long prayer, but we pray without ceasing. God, I'm supposed to have a prayer prayer. 24 hours a day. God, that's the longest prayer I can think of. God, I know that your word says, but God, at the end of the day, all of this is coming from you, Father. I'm not doing this to attain favor with you. That's where some of you are today. You think because you haven't done the checklist that God is against you. And I want you to know God is not against you. Find your identity in Jesus. He loves you so much. He is for you. He wants to change your life. Father, Father, I pray for someone in here to call upon your name and that you would save. If you're here today and you've never called upon the name of the Lord, make that today. Call upon him. Jesus, save me. Jesus, save me. God, give me your righteousness. Jesus, save me. And if that's you today, pray. Ask him. And then talk to somebody. After the service, come talk to me, power, somebody in your family, a friend that you know, somebody, a teacher, somebody that you know who loves the Lord. Talk to them about the decision that you've made. Maybe you're here today and you're walking through some garbage in your life and you need to have some prayer time. The altar is open for anyone who is in this place today. Maybe you're here today and you need to be baptized. Did you know this? Next Sunday, we're going to baptize eight people. It's going to be a glorious Sunday. 
Maybe you need to be a part of that uh, of those eight people and be baptized. You've trusted Christ as your Savior, and you've never been baptized. And I just got to be honest with you. That's your first step as a believer is to be obedient and to walk in, in, in baptism. Maybe you're here today and you've never been baptized, but you know that you're saved. If that's you today and you want to be baptized, come talk to us. Come up front during this invitation time. We'll talk to you. Won't embarrass you, I promise. But we want to talk with you. If you want to be baptized, come forward today. We'd love to talk with you. Father God, bless this time. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name.